What a difficult, difficult teaching Pastor Steve provided to us, and yet one that so powerfully moved so many of us to stand at that fork in the road that Jesus described earlier in John 12, glorify your name or save me from this hour, and choose the path of glorifying God in spite of our circumstances or our struggles. As I sat there in my seat on that bus, I found myself feeling so proud of our church and the way we are allowing God to mold and shape us, even in the hard teachings and in ways that will force us to deny ourselves and make sacrifices for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. And so as I continued to study this passage that we just heard read from John 12 this past week, I realized again just how deeply Jesus embodied and understood the reality that the choice to glorify God requires far more than just a decision. That decision is just the beginning point for a long journey ahead. And so Jesus continues in this discourse and being the ever-faithful shepherd, knowing that he has called us to this point of decision, he now turns his attention and his words to coaching and instructing us with a call to action, saying, walk in the light while you can so the darkness will not overtake you. Those who walk in darkness don't know where they are going, so put your trust in the light while there is still time. Then you will become children of light. And it seems significant to me to to note that what he didn't say was, if your intention is to glorify God, then stay where you are because your desire to do the right thing is good enough. Instead, he encourages us in the way of glorification, in the way of himself. And he emphasizes that once our path is chosen, which is no small feat, then we must take intentional action in that direction. That probably doesn't seem like rocket science if you think about it. It seems fairly consistent with any decision we make in life that we want to turn into something. If I decide to run a marathon, which I'm probably not going to, but if I did, and then I don't prioritize training for that marathon in my daily routine and schedule, I'm probably not going to run that marathon. If I tell you I'm committing myself to reading 500 pages a week, but I never purchase or pick up a book, then my decision is rather inconsequential. It might be noble in its intent, but it's really of no significance at all whatsoever to my person or my overall life. These are examples of the type of apathy that so often leads us to regret. We intend to do something. We might even avow publicly that such transformation is going to take place in our lives but then we don't take steps forward to fulfilling our intentions. We don't make tangible progress forward toward our desired outcome, and before long we find ourselves merely reflecting on what could have been instead of celebrating what has become. Sadly, I don't think this type of lack of follow-through in our choices is restricted only to our physical or our academic lives. Our spiritual journeys are fraught with opportunities for us to make decisions, whether they be at an altar or in a quiet moment before the Lord, or even as we engage the word with our communities of faith. But the question is, what action are we willing to take to enliven our intent or to allow our decisions to truly form us into better disciples? 
Choices or decisions by nature require follow-up and action in order to matter. And so Jesus' prescription for progressing down the path of glorifying God, according to this account in chapter 12, is simple. Move. Specifically, move in the direction that he is going. And yet understanding the courage it will take us to walk this path, Jesus kindly postures himself as a steady homing beam, a beacon referring to himself as light, which is not a foreign concept to us. Isaiah prophesied that the coming Messiah would be the great light. And John introduces us earlier in his gospel to Jesus, saying, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of humankind, a light that shines in the darkness. And so as we enter the story a little later now in John chapter 12, Jesus is advising those gathered around him this day in Jerusalem for the Passover feast not to take the light for granted. He's warning them that they won't always have it with them. And it's interesting to note that this is actually one of the last times in John's gospel we read of Jesus being referred to as the light because John will now turn his narrative nearer and nearer to the cross. And so once again, Jesus is encouraging the skeptics and the onlookers around him to choose their paths carefully. His invitation is directed both at those in the crowd for whom the verdict on who Jesus really is is still to be determined, as well as to the Pharisees, who are essentially this group of people standing around waiting for Jesus to screw up and debunk his claims that he is the promised one. And he's warning both of these groups that the time to make their choice has come, because if they can't do it while he's standing there in front of them, repeatedly demonstrating his God-given abilities and power, then how on earth are they going to do it after he's gone? The temptation for us here today in this room is to just read this passage of scripture, though, as an historical account, as yet another of Jesus' predictions of his impending death or of one last plea to the Jewish people to receive him as their king. And yet if we do this, if we limit the text in this way, then I believe we miss the opportunity to be guided by Jesus' words as we seek to put our decision to glorify God into action. Because what if Jesus is reminding us here that as we embark on our journey that we've committed to, his light is constantly coming and going, showing us the way in which we should walk and how to navigate this path that we are called and committed to if we will only lean into it and allow it to guide us. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that Christ is not omnipresent or that he is engaging us as his followers in some dictatorial game of hide and seek. But I do believe that Christ chooses specific times and places to reveal himself to us in special ways. Ways that grab our attention and then lovingly aid us in walking the path to which he has called us and to which we have committed ourselves. And so once we have made that commitment and chosen the path down which we will walk, we then have to attune ourselves to the true light that is Christ and then obediently follow where it leads. And while that seems like a simple two-step process, identify and follow, 
It often seems we find it more challenging to comprehend and embrace than we might have anticipated. In order to follow the light of Christ, we have to know his light. And this is so challenging for us in a day and age where there are so many inputs available to us, so much information that claims to be able to direct and guide our journeys. It was in the early hours of the morning on January 17, 1994, that people living in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles, California, were awakened abruptly by a 6.7 magnitude earthquake that rocked the area. This wasn't one of those earthquakes that you missed or you simply slept through like we have here in Indiana. This thing had a rumble that was felt up to 600 miles away from its epicenter in Reno, Nevada. Instantly, apartment buildings caught on fire from severed gas lines and bridges and overpasses in the heart of L.A. crumbled and hundreds of thousands of people began fleeing their homes, pouring into neighborhood streets, afraid of powerful aftershocks or even another earthquake itself. This was Los Angeles, the second most populated city in the United States, suddenly without power, completely dark aside from the fires burning in the quake's aftermath, and in the midst of countless 911 calls reporting people trapped in burning or collapsed buildings and asking for assistance for the some 9,000 people who were injured that morning, there came a second string of 911 calls reporting an eerie and spooky, suspiciously glowing silver cloud that had formed over the city. Countless frightened citizens who were standing in the streets of L.A. attempting to stay clear of instable structures were convinced that this was some type of chemical or environmental threat forming overhead as a result of the quake. And yet upon investigation, it would later be discovered that this eerie and supposedly sinister cloud was the Milky Way. Stars and planets in the heavens on full display in Los Angeles for its frightened citizens to see. And yet it was perceived as something foreign and menacing in the absence of the normal amount of light saturation that typically fills the night sky in this major metropolitan area. Think about that. Street lights, illuminated marquees, even a steady flow of traffic on the LA freeway system with headlights shining brightly make it possible on any given night to see the LA skyline from up to 200 miles away. And so with this saturation of artificial light, people living in this community had no firsthand comprehension of the heavens above them, these stars that shined up above. I'm sure they'd read about it in school textbooks or maybe even seen pictures from NASA, but it wasn't until the artificial light of their lives was removed that they were directly confronted by and acquainted with this natural nighttime illumination. And so in the same way as we attempt to progress down the path we have chosen to glorify God, there is an absolute necessity for us to be keenly familiar with the true light of Christ and to be guided by that light alone. And this only happens when we spend regular and intentional, diligent time in his word, in familiarizing ourselves so that we can recognize and know his voice, so that we can identify the one whom we are called to follow beyond a shadow of a doubt, even in a world that is filled with noise and motion, with artificial lights that flash and flicker all around us, 
all attempting to distract us and guide us away from the path to which we are called and committed. So no matter how many wise people you might have around you, and we have a lot of them in this community, no matter how many books or blogs you might read telling you the best way to faithfully follow God, the only true way to recognize the light is to know the light. And Jesus instructs us that once we know the light, the challenge then becomes following it obediently. As I thought about that this week, I wanted somebody to tell me why this is so difficult. Because if you've ever truly been trapped in the darkness, which I realize few of us have in this day and age of electricity and technology, but if you've ever really been stranded in the dark, then you know the gift that light is. Just two weeks ago, when this building and much of South Marion was dark due to a power outage, there was at no time before the sun came up less than eight to ten cell phones out in these hallways blazing the paths for us to go. I came walking out of the office holding a candle and I got mocked for it. How primitive of me. <laughs> and yet it occurs to me that we have no problem most of the time embracing and endorsing light for its provisionary qualities, for its warmth and its guidance. And yet I think that's only a partial description of the light that Jesus calls us to follow. And so we have to ask ourselves, what if the light of Christ is also the place where we find refining friction and a descaling of the dross that we have collected over time while walking in the darkness? I'll be honest with you, it's not nearly as much fun for me to think about light as a purifier or a distiller. And yet light is, after all, a disinfectant and a germicidal. When my son Silas was just days old, he was terribly jaundiced, and the doctor sent in this little, what it looked like was like a little light-filled suitcase into our home and told us to place it in his crib and then lay him in it as much as we possibly could. And so for three days and nights, this kid looked like a teenager prepping for spring break in a tanning bed. But these lights were actually working to help his tiny body omit the harmful buildup of bilirubin that was in his bloodstream. And so our house was more or less flooded with this weird blue light at all hours of the day and night. We got a lot of strange looks from our neighbors. And I'll be honest, while this was going on, we weren't particularly, particularly glad for the light. We couldn't hold our newborn child and yet as his color returned to normal and the blood test returned positively, we quickly became grateful for what the light produced in our baby. You see, light is not always the warm, comforting glow that makes us feel safe or at ease. Sometimes its presence is necessary to powerfully sterilize bacteria or other harmful components that could thwart our ability to progress down the road to which we are called and committed. And so our temptation is to only follow the light when it makes our way easy or when it reveals truth about somebody else, <laughs> but to flee from it when it highlights our own inadequacies or indiscretions when it threatens our habits and our comforts and our ways of living. 
Jim and I have some friends who were called to serve a church a number of years ago in Australia. They were a new, newlywed couple, and they were ecstatic because when they got to Australia, they were told that the church wanted them to live in its parsonage. And as newlyweds with no money, this was a deal because this house was huge and it was well-kept and everything about it seemed remarkable until one night my friend woke up in the middle of the night and needed a drink of water. And so he fumbled his way through the house, getting to the kitchen door and realizing he was still not familiar enough with the place to make it into the kitchen in the dark. And so he flicked on the light only to be met with hundreds of cockroaches that went scurrying under every cabinet and behind appliances and in seconds were gone from his sight. And it occurs to me that so often we like those insects run from the light and retreat to the darkness as a means of self-preservation. Darkness, after all, hides and conceals. And so while we so often think of being afraid of the dark, it's ironic to me that we are so often lured into its cracks and crevices, believing that there we'll be safe from the ugly truths the light might illuminate about ourselves. As Paul reminded the Ephesian church, everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And so choosing to follow Christ's light means we understand that Jesus' invitation to walk in that light is far more than just a preview of what's to come down a particular path before we commit to it. It is also a call to subject ourselves to his conviction. And if your experience is anything like mine, you can attest to the fact that God's conviction can be a daunting and difficult thing. And yet, if we desire to progress down the path of glorifying God, and if we trust that ultimately God desires to lead us in the paths of righteousness, then we have to learn how to be honest with ourselves and to lean into the light when it presents itself to us to see where God is revealing his truth, even if that truth presents us with an image of ourselves that is different than the one we've held or that we've attempted to posture to others. The fruit of the light, Paul wrote, consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, that we should allow the light to expose the deeds of darkness, making everything, everything visible. That's sobering, isn't it? And yet here's the great news that Jesus brings us. If we subject ourselves to this light and willingly seek opportunities to walk in it, We are positioning ourselves to be cleaned, made new and more in alignment with his will. And what's more, we will be able to enliven and enact our desire to progress down the path to which we are called to glorify God. Because when we know and actively walk in the light, trusting it when it presents itself to us, we will, Jesus says, become children of light. When I was a kid, I remember my dad receiving a telescope one year for Christmas. And if my memory serves me correctly, this was a gift that spent more time in the closet or the basement than it ever did anywhere else before it ultimately made its way to a yard sale. And yet there were a few times where I recall being called into the backyard where my dad had set up this contraption and told me there was something I had to see. As a kid, I wasn't particularly motivated by astronomy, but I do recall one night being called to the yard and dutifully dragging myself out there only to be met by my dad's giddy grin. 
He was ready to show my brother and me his latest find in the sky. And as I stepped up to the telescope that night and fit my eye to the eyepiece, I saw a clear, stunning view of the moon in impressive, illuminated detail, craters and crevices clearly in focus. And as I stared at this image my dad had pulled into view, I realized I wasn't really paying attention to what he was telling me about what I was seeing. But I tuned in just as he said, you know that's just a big rock up there. In and of itself, the moon has no glow of its own. It's just a big hunk of stone. And he went on to explain to me what most kids probably learned in the third grade science class, but I hadn't caught, that the full moon we see here on Earth is nothing more than a reflection of the sun, seen only when the moon is, from our perspective here on Earth, 180 degrees away from it, facing the sun and reflecting just a mere portion of its brilliant light. So the amount of the face of the moon that is turned toward the sun is in direct correlation to how much of the moon we see here on Earth on any given dark night. So as we seek to put our intention to walk the path of glorifying God into action, Jesus' words remind us here that we have access to the gift of his light to direct us and guide us on that journey. If we will intentionally familiarize ourselves with his light, identifying it amidst so many other potential distractions, and then follow it obediently, even when it holds the potential to expose things about ourselves we'd rather not have known, Jesus promises that we, like the moon, will become reflectors of his light. So this morning, it is my prayer that as you have committed yourself to the path of glorifying God, you will be compelled to trust and follow the light of Christ. And in so doing, you will leave this place today excited, and confident in your identity as a child of his light. And so to that end, I want us to close this morning by proclaiming these truths from scripture and singing of this great promise. Will you stand as we join in proclaiming these words together? Jesus said, walk in the light while you can so the darkness will not overtake you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Those who walk in the darkness can't see where they are going. If we claim we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Put your trust in the light while there is still time, then you will become children of light. Let us live as people of light, for this light within us produces only what is good and right and true. May this light shine before everyone, that they might see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven.